Well, let's please open our Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I'm just really excited about getting into this book. It's uh, a really, really awesome book. Intense. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Jeremiah chapter 1. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we thank you so much that we can just open up your word. And Lord, lo and behold, you're speaking to us, speaking to specific situations in our life, Lord. And we thank you for that. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord. Help us this evening. In your word, you say that you are our help. Pray that we would understand, give us understanding of what we read, Lord. Give us the heart of this man who wept for the sin and the rebellion of his people, Lord. Give us hearts like this man, Lord. I thank you so much just for the testimony that is in this book and the word that is for us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Jeremiah. He prophesied during the reign of Josiah. From about 586 B.C. to or 606 B.C. to about, um, uh, or 620, for about 40 or so, about 620 to B.C. to 586 B.C., He was born during the reign of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was probably the most wicked king, really, in the history of of certainly Judah, if not all of Israel. He, you know, so much was described as said of Manasseh that during his reign that there was so much innocent blood that was poured. It just, you know, filled the streets from one end end of Jerusalem to the other. He was born into that. This book is one of the reasons people like it so much. It was largely autobiographical in nature. Isaiah, you know, we don't know much about the man, Uh, you know, other than some odd things, like at one point he prophesied naked for a year or two, you know, that's, you know, kind of strange, but God sure used that in a great way to attract attention, but we don't know a whole lot about him. Jeremiah, we know a lot about. He talks a lot about his own feelings. We actually know a fair amount just from the first few verses, and you really, really get to know the prophet very well. And 
he is just revered by the Jews and in Israel. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And who'd they say? Three men. John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah. He was really revered amongst the people. It says in verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, Hilkiah, anyone recognize that name? Hilkiah? Hilkiah was, well, there was a priest, a high priest, during the reign of Josiah who, remember, found the book of the law? He found the book of the law in the temple, and he brought it out, and he presented it to the king, and the king had it read to him, and Josiah, being such a godly young man, tore his clothes and said, Woe is, is unto us and woe is unto Israel because they have not obeyed the, the words of the, of the law. It says that Jeremiah was the son of Ahilkiah. Now, if you read some of the commentators, uh, they think they don't, most of them think that um, his father was not that same guy. I am completely unconvinced by reading their arguments. I think he was just the same guy. Uh, he was the very guy that Jeremiah had this rich heritage. Uh, the reason that most of them give is because he's from this place called Anathoth. Uh, and they say things like, well, the high priest would have lived in Jerusalem, but this place was three miles from Jerusalem. That's not a long way. And... Uh, just from the rich heritage. Others do believe that he was indeed the son of that man. He was the son, or rather his uncle, was a guy named Shalom, who shows up in chapter 30 or something like that. And Shalom was the husband of Huldah. You guys remember who Huldah was? The prophetess Huldah? Remember that? Stephanie's nodding her head, yes. Prophetess Huldah, when they had found the book of the law and he realized they had not um, obeyed the, any of the words of that book, he was so aghast, it says he went to the prophetess Huldah and said, what's going to become of us? We've been, uh, we have been uh, disobeying this law. And she declared that Actually, she declared that uh, the Israel would be, Judah would be destroyed, but with the exception of you, Josiah, since your heart has been so tender before the Lord. Huldah, now come on, we have all these babies being born. <laughs> Sue, Huldah. Where's Shoba? Shoba's not here? Melissa? Someone tell them, give them a message. I like Selah, but Huldah. There's an incredible heritage, actually. It's a wonderful story there. And uh, it says that he, 
you know, from the land of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is just a very small area of land, really, right on top of, of Judah. And, it, and the king of, quote-unquote, Judah was also the king of Benjamin as well, uh, those two tribes. To whom the lo- uh, word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 30th year, rather the 13th year of his reign. So in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, Jeremiah came into power. Now, Josiah, if you remember, instituted a tremendous reform. He... Uh, you know, went through all the lands. He destroyed the, uh, the 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 idols. He burned up the bones of the priests that had sacrificed to Baal, and he he just went throughout the the whole land and and just did a cleaning of of the area. He says they. And Second Chronicles chapter thirty four. It says they broke down and and it, when. Uh, Josiah got into uh, his 12th year, the 12th year of his reign. It says, They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden images he carved, and the carved images and the molded images he broke in pieces. He made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. It says in the next year after that started, in the next year is when Jeremiah began to prophesy. Now, that must have been just a wonderful season of his life when he was prophesying in the time of Josiah, at least compared to the rest of his reign, because Josiah would pass away he would, when he was a young man. I believe he was, was he 38 or 44? He was a young man. And then he also prophesied during the reign of two of Josiah's sons, one of Josiah's grandson, and then Zedekiah, all of whom were just wicked. And Zedekiah, we'll find out a lot about him, just two-faced as you can be. I mean, uh, as hypocritical as hypocritical gets. And, uh, you know, next... Sunday morning, I've asked Kenny to uh, plug this book, F.B. Meyer, Jeremiah. Just a fantastic book on Jeremiah. It does not read like a commentary. I don't know if you are familiar with Alan Redpath, but written very similarly, uh, lived in the late 1800s, F.B. Meyer did, I believe, and just is just such a comforting, warm read. Just wonderful book, and we're going to put it in the bookstore. But to give you just an example of how this guy writes, so he's describing what it was like for Josiah while he was growing up during the time of Manasseh. He says this, "...every high hill had its thick grove of green trees." within whose shadows the idolatrous rites and abominable license of nature worship were freely practiced. 
the face of the country was thickly covered with temples erected for the worship of Baal and Astarte and all the host of heaven and with lewd idols in the cities, the black robe Chemarim, the priest of these unhallowed practices, flitted to and fro in the strange contrast to the white stoled priest of Jehovah. The, te- the people were taught to consider vice as part of their religion and to frequent houses dedicated to impurity. All kinds of evil thrived unchecked. The poor were plundered. The innocent falsely accused. The wicked men lay in wait to catch men. Theft and murder, adultery, adultery, like spores of corruption, filled the fetid air and flourished on the tainted soil. F.B. Meyer, Jeremiah. And that's what he grew up in. And I'm sure, you know, he was a... a a powerful force used by the Lord during the time of Josiah, and they in some ways were a great pair. But um, as we read about when we went through Second Chronicles and Second Kings, the reform in the time of Jeremiah, I mean rather Josiah, was superficial. Josiah was genuinely repentant. He loved the Lord. His heart was tender before the Lord. But the people really converted over just to fall in line with the king. It was not a real conversion. It was not a real revival in the land. So it just goes to show you can have two men really in high places with the, the heart of, uh, of Josiah and the heart of Jeremiah and still if there's not a revival amongst the people. And, you know, I, I, I believe every Christian should be active uh, in politics in the in the sort of the political realm, but it just is so uh, frustrating and heartbreaking to me to see Christians putting their hope uh, in a man or a woman uh, who you know trying to get them into high office as if that is what's the solution for the country. No, it's not. Revival amongst the people that is the solution uh, to. Uh, the problems, including the problems um, uh, of our country. It says here in verse 3, it, uh, the word also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, me being uh, Jeremiah, saying, so this is God uh, speaking to, to uh, Jeremiah, and he's speaking to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And so, lest there be any misunderstanding what the Word of God says about when life begins, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, before he was even conceived, 
it says that God knew him. Now the word there for knew, the Hebrew word yada, it's in the Genesis it says Adam knew, same word, Eve, and they begot Cain. This is speaking of intimacy. So, so this is just really a truly amazing picture that, that, that God is intimately involved in the life and future of Jeremiah before he was even conceived. Now, I know things like this make our minds spin, but this is true of you before you were even conceived in your mother's womb. The Lord was actively involved in, it says, sanctified means setting apart. Before you were born, I set you apart. And setting you apart for a specific purpose. A specific purpose. Verse 6 says, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. And so he's saying, you know, you got to be kidding me. I'm young and... I, 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 I can't do this. There's this, this humility. You always have to be a little worried about someone who, who says, oh, yeah, God's calling me. Yeah, I'm the ticket. Pride becometh before shame. God will shame us when we have that attitude. And so he's beginning... Uh, saying, kind of like Moses, Moses, I, I can't, I'm not a guy who speaks in front of people. Choose someone else. Behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth. Stop it. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, <clears throat> and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, So God first called him. I guess even before that, it says he knew him before he was in his mother's womb. Meaning he was, speaking of knew, the Hebrew word yada, that intimacy, actively engaged, involved, purposeful, intentional, what am I going to do with this man who was not even conceived yet? Then he calls him But whoever God calls, God doesn't call you without also equipping you. It says here in verse 7, um, it says in rather verse 9, it says, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. In other words, he formed him and he fashioned him and he equipped him to be the man that 
he was going to be, that God had called him to be. God's not going to call you into something without equipping you to do it. You may feel like totally inadequate, and certainly not me. God's going to, but God is going to do that which is necessary to accomplish his purposes in your life. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Wow. He's something like 20 years old at this time, and this may have freaked him out. What on earth is this? I have set you over nations to root out and pull down, to destroy and to to throw down, to build and to plant. That right there is a wonderful description of the ministry of the Word of God. The ministry of the Word of God. What happens when the Word of God goes forth? It roots, it, it, it roots out, it pulls up the roots, it pulls down, it destroys, it throws down, and it builds up and it plants. And amazingly, at the beginning of the verse, it, sa- it says, I'm setting you over the nations and over the kingdoms. It's going to have a prophetic ministry that is going to profoundly affect the movement of nations and kingdoms. Verse 11. This is wonderful, dramatic couple of verses here, a few verses. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot and it is facing away from the north. And so he's sort of got a twofold vision here. The first one is he sees the branch of an almond tree in that Really, what the almond tree represents there is sort of the, the, the fertility and the success and the, uh, and the fact that, you know, an almond tree is going to uh, sprout up and give birth, meaning the word of the Lord is going to sprout off and it's, gonna be, uh, it's going to uh, bear fruit it's going to have branches and 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 also the idea here is he will be guarded under the shadow of the branch jeremiah in other words the word will go forth 
It will be affecting nations and people, and he will be protected. But at the same time, the second part of the vision is just really a, 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 a terror scene, a boiling pot. And it, it says it's facing away from the north. So from the north, verse 14, out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling the, all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, they shall come, each one, they, they shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments, verse 16, against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me. They burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Therefore, he's speaking here to Jeremiah, not to, the, not to the people of Israel, to Jeremiah. Prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its priests, against its, uh, rather, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Wow. Now, again, in verse 18 here, where it says, For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar. Who's he speaking to? Who's he speaking to? That's correct. He's not speaking to Israel. He's not speaking to a nation. He's speaking to one guy. The Revised Version says this, They shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. Who shall fight against you? Fortified cities will fight against him. Bronze walls. <laughs> the kings of Judah will fight against Jeremiah. The princes of Judah will fight against Jeremiah. Its priests shall fight against Jeremiah. The people of the land will fight against Jeremiah. In other words, it's everybody against one guy, Jeremiah. I mean, this is unique. <laughs> In the time of Elijah, I was just reading Elijah this morning, you know, I, I love Elijah. He goes out and he's, he's such a mighty man of God, but he panics and when Jezebel threatens him and he goes and he's by himself and he says he wants to die because he's the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 others. In the time of Jeremiah, there really weren't any others. One or two of his, you know, servants, they'll, they'll show up 
uh, as childhood friends, that type of thing. But it, it really is him against everyone. He, he is a priest, remember. It's kind of unique. This guy is a priest. In Israel, most of the time, there were prophets and there were priests, and you weren't both. He's both, which means what? The p- priests hated his guts. He was a traitor. He had betrayed them. The prophets were all prophets. The prophets hated his guts as well because he's a priest. He's not one of them. And plus, he's, he's getting in their face. He got in the face of kings. He got in the face of, we will see, of the king's court. He got in the face of the whole land. It's just everybody. Everybody against this one guy. So this is a real unique, exciting book. Because, for one, it really goes to show you that the Lord will accomplish what he wants in your life, and it doesn't matter who is fighting against you. You know, it can be everybody. Now, when you're a guy like this or a woman like this, where everybody is against you. What is the one thing that's going to be real difficult after a while? Man, if everyone's against me, I, I, they're, there's, they're probably right. I mean, I'm just a nutcase. I mean, surely if there was someone that was doing, surely there'd be someone else doing the right thing, but, but you know, and, and this is what it gets like, folks. You know, you're, you're in the workplace or you're in school and, I, you know, being a college student nowadays, being a student in public schools where... All the teachers. It's not unusual for every single teacher to, you know, look at all smart up there with their degrees and this type of thing. To be, you know, you go from class to class to class. After a while, it's like, maybe I really am in that case, like they're saying I am. Maybe I really am naive. Maybe I really am wrong. And I tell you, Satan will just stir up the enemy. I mean, when you have the overwhelming majority of the, of the media telling you that you're bigoted and narrow-minded, well, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. There's one thing that is going to be, in my opinion, by far the most important thing for you to go on, to move on. You know what it is? We've already read about it in Jeremiah. What is it? Your calling. Your calling. You got to be, you got to be convinced and secure in your calling. He, he, he was. There's no way you can go against kings, 
priests, prophets, and all the people. You better be sure of what you've been called to do. I remember being at a pastor's conference, and one of the, the pastor who was speaking up there was, um, you know, the, the facilitator asked him, he goes, you know, sometimes, actually the facilitator said, you know, not a day goes by, he was a pastor, the facilitator, that I don't want to quit. What makes you not want to quit? And they asked the other guy. He immediately said, my calling. Church planning is a really hard thing. You can go for years and years with a really, really small body. Handful of people. After a while, Satan's saying, you know, what, what, what's going on here? This isn't of God. You've got to be sure of your calling. He did. He was, rather. He said, before I formed you in the womb, verse 5, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you or called you a prophet to the nations. And then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. But the Lord said, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. That's a calling. God has put a calling on your life. Now, this guy, F.B. Meyer, I, all the time, you know, I, people ask me, well, how do I know what my calling is? He really articulates it great here, and I'm going to read this. How do you know something's your calling? Now, you, sometimes you do have to wait on the Lord, and it, it can be a number of years to you, you get a more of a clear vision of what your calling is. But I love the way this guy puts it, F.B. Meyer. He says, there is first the consciousness of a strong inward impulse which is most present in the holiest hours, but which is never far away and often surges up pure and strong in the soul. Ah, I like that. There is next a certain concurrence of providence by which other doors seem closed and that opened, and other doors are opened which conduct to the desired goal. Number three, besides these, there is a natural adaption, a consensus of opinion among friends and advisors, and the constant voice of the Spirit through the Word. Praise the Lord. A Spirit-filled guy living in the late 1800s, F.B. Myers. Again, I do recommend this book. But that's what a calling is. And usually when people ask me, you know, I say it's an impulse, an, a compulsion that just is never far away. And yes, it's true. And, in, in, you know, in the holiest of times, the compulsion's really far. But even when you're feeling like David did, we quoted Psalm 13 this morning, God, why are you hiding yourself so far from me? There's still, you know, it's not that far away, that compulsion. And again, if you're here today and, and you, you don't have a clear sense of calling, it's not something to worry about, although it is something to seek out and wait on the Lord for. He will reveal it to you. He absolutely will. But let me tell you, you cannot be a man like Jeremiah. And for that matter, I don't think you can be doing ministry in the United States of America where we're up against kings, priests, priests. You know, the biggest detractors of the church is not the world. 
It's these priests and pastors and seminary professors which are all in a rage against born-again Christians and people who believe in the Word of God. That's the real enemy out there. Of course, we know the enemy is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. But that, those, that's who Satan's really using. But you got to have, you got to be developing, you got to wait on God for that calling uh, in order to be going. It says, and against the people of the land. This is a description of, of life today, although we shouldn't try to put ourselves really next to quite quite like Jeremiah because he, he didn't have a church body. He didn't have a family like we did. And man, is he going to... This is just an amazing, amazing book. It, the, the interesting thing about this book, by the way, is that it's not only prophecy, it's, it's history. So some of the chapters, they read just like First and Second Kings, exactly like it. Just going through, you know, Zedekiah and other people throwing him into a well, and he's at the bottom of a well, you know, what am I doing down here? You know, that type of thing. And so it's a great book because so, it breaks into regular sort of like you're reading history. Jeremiah, many people have compared him to, to Jesus just because, or maybe perhaps he's a type of foreshadowing of Jesus, just because he was a man of sorrows. The next book, the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, he's just looking at Jerusalem destroyed, and he's just lamenting, just like Jesus actually lamented over Jerusalem, although it was before it was destroyed. <clears throat> Wonderful book. Chapter 2, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth. So he's, this is the Lord speaking to Jerusalem, uh, speaking to the Israelites, the Jews rather, in Jerusalem. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. So he's trying to get the people to say, he, it, this is the Lord speaking to Jerusalem. They're in the middle of rebellion. They're disobeying the word of God. And he's saying, I remember you and your youth. Same could be said, by the way, for the United States of America. The cra you know, this area, Boston, the spiritual cradle uh, birthplace of the United States of America. And as I remember you when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, meaning they were set apart to the Lord. He was the first fruits of his increase. And some people say, well, this doesn't make sense because in the wilderness, didn't they rebel and complain? Well, not at the end. Remember, the people who went into the wilderness from Egypt, they all died out except for Joshua and Caleb. But at the very end of their experience, and you see in the book of Numbers, they're praising the Lord, man, as they're marching towards, uh, as they're marching towards the promised land. Remember? Spring up, oh well, within my soul. Anyone remember that? Years ago when we did numbers and it's also a song a kid's song uh so uh he's he's talking to them wow you know you were f you, you were the first fruits of my increase verse 4 hear the word of the lord o house of jacob and all the families of the house of israel 
Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me? What have I done wrong to you? United States of America, what is it that I withheld from you, United States of America? That they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters. Neither did they say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. So there's many, 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 many who handle the law, handle the word of God, who are not saved. Uh, you know, I spent a couple of years in, in seminary at different seminaries. And the first year and a half, I had Hebrew. And the professor was, you know, God forgive me. The guy was a pagan. He, he spent the, at a seminary, a Christian seminary, just explaining away every miracle in the Bible. I remember him saying, does anyone in here really think that God spoke from the burning bush? And, you know, I raised my hand. And one time he said, who, you know, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? I raised my hand and said, Moses. And he upbraided me in front of the whole class. I, me and that guy, this is, I was only two years in the Lord in the Lord, oh my goodness, were we at each other's throats the whole time. One time a student just rebuked me in front of everyone, said, we came here to learn. You're not letting us learn. Uh, but, but this is what I got the whole semester. He, the, the man said, if Christians would only, when they go overseas, would only stop trying to convert people, we'd all get, get along so much better in this world. This is what was said from a seminary, a Christian seminary in the United States of America. And guess what? Boston has a handful of those same seminaries teaching the same things with atheists on their staff. Atheists. I remember one seminary, I, I was interviewing a woman once for a job, and this is when I was in the workforce, and, uh, and uh, she was doing a dual law degree and a theology degree. I said, so what do you think of... Uh, uh, Emory Divinity School in Atlanta. She goes, well, it's okay as long as you don't mind being taught the book of Romans by an atheist. This is what's going on in this country. And, and, and you know, they're really good at their Hebrew or, or whatever. And so we'll, we'll bring them in because they're a real smart person. But they don't know the Lord. Come on. I'm preaching to the choir. I'll just get off of that bandwagon. But, but we need to understand that's a reality in this country. Verse 8, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by, uh, by all and walked, walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and sea. 
Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. So what he's saying is like, look into these other pagan nations. As long as you look back, they had more or less the same gods. They weren't gods, he says there. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? No, that never happened. But here's a nation of the true living God, and they're changing its gods, is what he's saying. Verse 12, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Praise the Lord. He's the fountain of living waters. John chapter 7, he who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow forth from within him and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, what's the deal with cisterns? What's the deal with them, right? What's living water mean? What does it mean, living water? Running water, running water. That's what the Lord that's what the Holy Spirit is. He's living water. And he always has a new song for us. It's always new. It's always fresh. You know, I, I don't believe in ministry or pastor burnout. I don't believe in that. Pastors don't burn out unless they've shut off the Holy Spirit or in ministry. You don't burn out unless... You've shut off the, the Holy Spirit from acting in your life. Sometimes, you know, we need, need to scale back and cut this or that off. But what, quitting the ministry entirely because you're burnt out? Well, look back three years, man. You did something wrong. You started going in a wrong direction. He's the fountain of living waters. A cistern has no... It's just dead water. So a cistern is you, you dig in a rock, a hole, and you pour water into it. And guess what? After a couple days, it, what happens? It begins to stank. I remember our house in Mission Hill, the, when we bought the property, it was a total God thing, but we hired a guy initially who... He, he, he was, did not treat us in, a, in an honest fashion, and he uh, made all kinds of promises, and every day he told me he was going to start, and day after day, week after week went. He finally, he, 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 he dug a hole in my property, and he didn't finish it, and he dug it in the wrong place and in the wrong way, and Every day he told me that he was going to come and fix it, and two months went by, he didn't. I finally had to fire him. But in that two months, water had gotten into that hole, and my neighbors were like, man, this is some kind of new neighbor, this green, smelly stuff, you know, emanating from this property. That's what a cistern is, and that's what Israel had been doing, and that's what you do. That's what I do when we dig out cisterns in the, the rock of the world, the dirt of the world. We dig out a cistern, a career cistern. You know, dig it out. I'm, ooh, I'm going to climb up the corporate ladder, 
guess what? You'll get as far as you, you get, and that may be very high, and then when you get there, you're going to learn it stinks. There's a stench there. <laughs> the cistern of pleasure, same thing. You dive into it. Wow, sin is pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season. But after a while, what happened? What happens? It stinks. Just the cistern of uh, anything, adventure, of sports, many things, all of which in themselves they can be good, but after a while it's like, what, you know, what's up with this? Tom Brady, three Super Bowl rings, interviewed on 60 Minutes, and he's like, he's interviewed, and they're like, man, you have it all. You have what every person uh, wants in the world. Are, you know, are you content? Are you happy? He says, no, there's just something else out there. I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. That's a broken cistern. He's talking about the Super Bowl. That's the number one event. More people watch the last Super Bowl than any other television show in the history of our country. And nothing wrong with just watching the Super Bowl. I watched the last quarter. But uh, it's, if that's your idol, if that's what you live for, if you're a fantasy football freak, man, it's going to be smelling rotten. And the thing is, not only does it stink, it's what? Broken, it says in verse 13. They've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 14, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the people of Naf and Tapanes have broken the crown of your head. Have, not brought, have you not brought this on yourself? In other words, you're miserable. You are miserable. Why don't you get it? It's God. You have to turn to God. Ever felt like doing that to someone? Ever done that to someone? Verse 18, and now why take the road to Egypt? Now this is going to be a major theme because they were threatened to the north and to Babylon. They were going to go to Egypt for help. We'll see this over and over. To drink the waters of Sihor. Why take the road to Assyria? To drink the waters of the river. That's the Euphrates. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. A, black, a backsliding will rebuke, huh? Ooh, this hurts. This hurts, man. Lying on the sidewalk in a puddle of puke. This, this hurts bad. Sometimes our backslidings do that, right? Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you. Nothing more safe than a healthy fear of God. And there's nothing more safe than a healthy fear of God. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds and you said I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot, yet I had planted 
you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. Now then, have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. How can you say, I am not polluted? So they were saying to Jeremiah, they were saying to the Lord, I'm not polluted. How can you say I have not gone under the bile? He's saying, See your way in the valley. Know that you, what you have done. You're a swift dromedary. That's a cow or something, isn't it? It's a dromedary. Isn't that a kind of buffalo or... Oh, camel. That's right. Sorry. Wow. Breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used to the, used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? So they're just sniffing whatever whim or desire that comes along, and they're just running after it. Verse 25, Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens, and after them I will go. So they're running after aliens. In this particular context just means strange gods or or people from other religions, intermarrying, that type of thing, uh, someone from a foreign uh, foreign religion. Verse 26, as the thief is ashamed when he is find out, found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed. They are their, they and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone, you gave birth to me. So this is just like pagan rituals type of thing. Going to a tree, worshiping nature. We have the same thing today. This sort of the new age type of thing where God is in nature, God is in everything. Uh, verse 28, for when, when are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Rather, where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. So that description that we read from F.B. Meyer, it was, it was real. There's just temples everywhere. Just hundreds of gods, hundreds of statues, hundreds of idols. Verse 29, why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain, I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. So he's chastened them. He's disciplined. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that if we're not disciplined, if we don't go through times of tribulation and trial, we are illegitimate children. And, and he's like, I've chastened uh, your children. He's also chastened them. But they have not corrected themselves. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. In other words, we're our own gods. We're lords, meaning master, master of our own life. That was Eve and Adam's sin in the garden. They wanted to be their own lord. Verse 32, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me, for have forgotten me days without number. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. So they were, that's just referring there to child sacrifice, 
people sacrificing their children to Molech. Verse 35, yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Yeah, this, the man has just amazing capacity to convince, convince himself he's in right standing before God. Amazing capacity to do that. You know, our heart, beware of our heart. You know, the, the devotional guy, Reed Bogotsky, says, beware of your heart. You have more to fear from it than all your other enemies. It's true. Your heart can convince you that you're in complete right standing with God when, even in, as in this case, you, they were killing their own children. Verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. So this is a really intense book, and he really goes after the sin in the land. It's amazing that the Lord does not give up on his people. He does not give up on them to the very, very end. You know, we should never, ever, ever, ever have that attitude. Well, the Lord, the land, the world's all going to hell. Let's, we should just go into a bunker and enjoy our last years before the rapture or whatever. But that's, where do you get that? Like, that's not in the Bible. It's not taught anywhere in the Bible. And you see in Jeremiah, we know from hindsight they, that really was the case, that these people were not going to turn back. Yet the Lord continues to send his prophets to prophesy there, to send his prophets uh, to prophesy there. I believe the women are in second chapter, Second Peter chapter, what, 2, Stephanie? And I think they... Uh, this well, last week they were talking about. Were you talk? Were you talking recently about Jesus going down into the prison, right? And what that means? There's many different ter- interpretations, and they, they, um, there's many different interpretations of of what that means in in First Peter that Jesus, after he died, he went back and. Uh, to preach to the people who had been in prison, who had rebelled in the time of Noah, right? Is that right? There's many different interpretations of that. One is that that Jesus was, which I'm inclined towards, although you can't be dogmatic about it, dogmatic about it that Jesus just went and, and spoke to the people who are in Hades, who are waiting hell, awaiting the, the lake of fire, who are in torment, and he's just teaching them the truth, even though that's where they're going. There is this sense in the Bible, uh, throughout the Bible, that God is going to declare his truth regardless of where people are going. It's just in his heart for the truth to go forth, whether it's accepted or rejected. And so, uh, anyway, the Jeremiah is certainly an example of, I, I believe with all my heart, by the way, there's going to be revival in this city, in this land, in this country. But even if there's not, even if we knew there was not, we need to keep on witnessing as we've never been witnessing before, sharing our faith. I love what 
Pastor Silas said to the men a couple weeks ago at men's breakfast, he said, part of abiding in Christ, it's not only, it's not only prayer, it's not only being in the Word of God, it's sharing your faith. That's part of abiding in the Lord. So we'll close there. We will pick it up in chapter 3.